All right, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to grab it and make your way to 2 Kings chapter 18 through chapter 20. It's on page 324 in your Bibles. Uh, Well, maybe not, but in the black hardback ones around you, it's on page 324. Adversity. Adversity is a word that's probably overused a lot of times. If you follow high school or college football, it's a word that's trotted out a lot of times, uh, especially when your team is terrible. Um, They will just label it adversity. And the, 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 like, dictionary definition of adversity is this, a state or instance of serious or continued difficulty or misfortune. And so as a Georgia Tech grad and alumni, I'm hearing the word adversity a lot these days because they're terrible. And I, well, we just got to push through, just got to get through the adversity. I'm like, it's not adversity, it's you stink. <laughs> it's you're terrible. It's not adversity. There's a whole lot more. And so it's overused a lot of times. And I get it like with football or various sports, you know, they teach a good life lesson. They teach about overcoming obstacles, uh, pushing through this. You get out of it, you know, what you put into it. And so there's a good place for all of those sorts of things, good life lessons. But at the end of the day, it's just a game. Real adversity is in life. Real adversity is when you get the call from your parent and it says, hey, it's, it's stage four cancer. It's when you get the diagnosis from the doctor that your child has an incurable disease. It's when you've poured yourself into a job for years, maybe decades, and then they remove you and treat you like nothing more than a cog in a machine. It's when your spouse walks out It's when your parents walk out on you. It's when a friend promises one thing one day, only the next day to turn around and stab you in the back and do something completely different. On and on and on we could go with these things. Adversity is in those situations. And the question then is, what do we do then? When these things hit, what do we do? How do we to respond to these states or instances of serious or continued difficulty or misfortune? I think the life of Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 through 20 is really helpful in answering those questions. And yet at the same time, I think it's actually helpful in answering the inverse of that question. How do we respond in prosperity? Because King Hezekiah faces both massive adversity, but also some prosperity. And so even in the midst of what God is doing, like across all these books in redemptive history, showing these short-term, temporary, like kind of foreshadowings of the kingdom that is to come, the one that is fulfilled by the Messiah King, Christ, even as he's just kind of, the, the books are showing those things, I think, just as Lee read just a moment ago, that these things happened also as an example, but were written down for our instruction. And so this morning, may we learn how to respond to adversity and prosperity by looking at the life of King Hezekiah. 
Now, if you're a guest, what we've been doing for a number of weeks now is we've been tracking a number of months now. We've been tracking through the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. We're coming to the end. We have two weeks left after this in the book of Kings. And what's happened is the kingdom of Israel, ever since Solomon, has split in two. So you have the northern kingdom that's continued being called Israel, made up of ten tribes. And you have the southern kingdom that's called Judah. All right? And the northern kingdom, last week, chapters 12 through 17, when we covered that, we saw like they're gone. They've been decimated. They've been eradicated. God has brought judgment on them. The Assyrians came in. They have been exiled. They have been replaced. That's where the Samaritans come from in the New Testament. So they're gone. But the kingdom of Judah is continuing on for a little bit more. And King Hezekiah is now the king of Judah. And all of that decimation of the northern kingdom took place during his reign down in Judah. So he saw it. He watched what what was happening. He lived through it. He saw what happened. And so the repeating anthem of the book of, of Kings has been like bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king. All pointing us to the greater king we need, Jesus. But this week with Hezekiah, as well as next week with a guy named Josiah, we get a little respite from all these bad kings. And we get two that are actually pretty good. So let me, let me show you like how the author here praises Hezekiah, how high he holds him. And then we'll enter into this. So if you'll join me, chapter 18, page 324, verses 1 through 8. Listen to this. In the third year of Hosea, so that's the, the Israelite king at the time when they get taken out, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, like the prototype king, right, his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. So that should stand out to you. Even the Kings that have been pretty good, none of them ever removed the high places. They never totally eradicated idolatry. Hezekiah did. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. This is back in Exodus. It was like of the Lord. Look upon this Bronze serpent for deliverance from a period of time. But what had happened was they had now taken that, which was for one point in time, and they had now taken that and turned it into an idol that they were worshiping. A warning for how things, even in the church, that start as good can become idols. Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him. I mean, hear that. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from Watchtower 
to fortified city. And so that's who Hezekiah was, right? This is like the highest praise uh, a, a king other than David gets in all of these books. This is it, highest praise. So Hezekiah was a godly man. Like I said, Assyria had taken out the northern kingdom. Okay, they've also taken out 46 other like nation states around them. And so Assyria, like to get a kind of modern day picture, Assyria is kind of like Nazi Germany in 1940, right? After 1939, they invaded Poland. So that's, Assyria is kind of like Nazi Germany and Judah is kind of like France. Just waiting. Are they going to invade? Are they going to attack? We cannot repel them if they do. That's the situation that Hezekiah and Jerusalem, Judah, are living under. And so look at verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, so this is eight years after they've sacked Samaria and the northern kingdom. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, and if you don't, if you have trouble remembering how to pronounce that, just remember, snack of ribs. That's how I do it. So, snack of ribs, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So, he just took out all their fortified cities, right? He just took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Now, as an aside, I want you to see something here. Because what just happened in this, and this isn't even the main point of the text, but what's just the main point of the sermon this morning, what just happened here is he just caved. Hezekiah just completely caved in, in fear to the king of Assyria. And yet back in verses 1 through 8, you have all this high praise, you know, that's thrown down on him. In verse 7, it specifically says he rebels against the king of Assyria. But here, he's like caving to him. So what's going on? We need to remember that verses 1 through 8 are like the summation of his entire life. Everything, his whole life. Okay, and so what happens here, as well as something we're going to look at in chapter 20, is going to show some temporary lapses in him. But listen to me, those temporary lapses, those two temporary things, those two mistakes. They do not define the whole of his life. And so let us be reminded, as Tony Marita puts it, that even the most faithful can have periods in which they cave into pressure. And yet that doesn't define their whole life. And so, friend, whatever baggage you have, whatever, you know, you bring into this room, whatever you have, you know, that's in your background that may be weighty, maybe even something that people remember, just as Hezekiah stuff here is written down. Friend, that doesn't define your whole life. And so don't let it. And others of us in here don't define someone's life by their worst days. We wouldn't want them to do that to us. Right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
Look at the whole of their life. Because, I mean, the whole of Hezekiah's life, man, this is who I want to be when I grow up. This is kind of what I want God to say of me. He's an amazingly godly man. And yet, and I'm going to paraphrase the rest of the chapter, what winds up happening is the king of Assyria says, no, I don't want just your gold anymore. I'm going to go ahead and take over Jerusalem. Like I did with all your other fortified cities. I'm going to take over. And so he basically pulls up outside the Jerusalem walls and camps his army there, a quarter million people. At this time, Jerusalem probably has a population of 10,000. Mounted soldiers of maybe 2,000. This is an obvious, I mean, it's not even a, it's not even a contest. It's not even a thing. Two quarter million, 10,000, those are all 2,000 of the army. Just overwhelming odds. And so then some of the Assyrian military leaders start smack talking and talking about their glory, talking about Hezekiah's foolishness and talking about God's weakness. And so, for example, chapter 18, verse 33 says, has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered this land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Zephyrarim, Hina and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Flip over and look at chapter 19, verse 10. The king of Assyria says this. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. So what he's saying about God. God deceives by promising that Jerusalem will not be given in the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezif, and the people of Eden who were at Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of Zephyrim, the king of Hina, or the king of Eva? So this is the adversity that Hezekiah, this amazing guy, is facing, this godly king. And friends, notice that he is facing this despite the fact that he is a godly man, a godly king. He's a dude who's held up like on par with David. He's the guy who's held up and it's said of him, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following, but kept his commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. And yet he's facing all of this adversity. And so the number one in your notes, what I want you to write down, what we have got to remember is that obedience and faith do not immunize you from adversity. Obedience and faith do not immunize you from adversity. And anyone who tells you that it does is lying to you. Well, believe this message and you'll have a peaceful marriage and you'll have plenty of money and you'll have healthy kids and you'll have a healthy self. 
And that whole notion of do good and good things will happen, do bad and bad things will happen, has got to be one of the stupidest, most idiotic, biblically illiterate things you could ever say. Like, have you ever read the Bible? It goes bad for God's saints a whole lot. I mean, obedience and faith didn't immunize Hezekiah here. It doesn't immunize Isaiah. It doesn't immunize Jeremiah. It doesn't immunize Paul. It doesn't immunize Peter. It doesn't immunize the apostles. It doesn't immunize people down through church history. Obedience and faith didn't immunize Jesus from adversity. And so why would it you? And so if you've bought that lie, if you've ever lived out a vision of faith that's essentially baptized karma, then be free of that. Let go of any feeling you may have of of failure when difficulty comes upon you, of feeling like, oh, my faith must be not big enough, not strong enough, or this wouldn't have happened to me. That is false. That's just not true. And don't misunderstand. God absolutely watches over those who love Him. All right? You are in His hand. But nevertheless, adversity, hardship, suffering come for all of us in this world. Because this world's broken. It's fallen. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Sin has fractured it. But praise God, it won't always be this way. When Jesus comes again, he cracks the skies, new heavens, new earth. Exactly what we sang of this morning out of Revelation 19. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, he's making all things new. And so again, that's what we're longing for. That's where our hope is set. That's what we're looking to. The hope of heaven. But in the here and now, obedience and faith do not immunize us from adversity. I mean, the disciples, they sailed through lots of storms, right? And so the point's not like if you have obedience and faith, you're uh, exempt from the storms. And the point is that in the midst of the storms, Jesus gets in the boat with them and he's in the boat with you. He's in the boat with us. He's there. But obedience and faith do not immunize you from from adversity. And I want you to know that so that when it comes upon you, you're not suddenly thinking, oh, I'm a horrible, I must be a, I'm not throwing the towel. I'm just give up. God's with you. This is life in a broken, fallen world. That's the first thing we need to know. But then how do we respond? How do we respond to this adversity? Like legit adversity. I'm not talking Georgia Tech football adversity. I'm talking like 250,000 versus 10,000 type of adversity. How do we respond to that? Look at chapter 19, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. This is like deep emotion. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of Rabshakeh, 
whom his master, that's like a, a speaker for the king of Israel, whom his master, the king of, Israel, of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And so do you see what Hezekiah did there? The first thing he did, the first thing he did is he involved Eliakim, Shebna, the senior priests, and the prophet Isaiah. And he asked them to pray for him. In other words, he responded to adversity by bringing other people into the situation. And so number two in your notes, respond to adversity in community. Respond to adversity in community. Like bring other people into it. Like as a pastor, what I see all too often is people try to isolate themselves when they're going through difficulty. They want to pretend like I got to keep up this facade. I got to keep up this appearance. I can't let people know what's really going on in my life. So they try to isolate themselves when difficulty comes. And that's completely backwards from what the scripture teaches from cover to cover. All the way through, from cover to cover, it teaches the exact opposite. Where that isolationism comes from in the times of difficulty is not Christianity. It's Americanism. It's individualism. It is not from the Bible. You won't find it there. And so kick that cultural habit to the curb. Because especially as a local body, as a church, we're called to bear one another's burdens. We can't do that together if every, every time difficulty comes, you go into hiding. The most helpful thing you can do in the time of difficulty is drag that difficulty into the light and involve other people in it. Not to be judged, but to receive help. That's what Hezekiah did. If you look into the New Testament, you'll see that's what Paul does. He's constantly saying, hey, pray for me about this, pray for me about this, pray for me about this. That's what Peter did. They involved others. They responded to adversity in community. And they asked for help and they asked for people to pray for them. And so let's be that to one another. And not just one time, but following up. Like this week I got two uh, texts from two men in uh, the church who were following up with me on a prayer request that I'd had previously. And you know how much that encouraged me that they have continued to be praying for this. And they are checking in on me to see how it's going and how the situation is. That's love. That's bearing burdens. Let's be that for one another. Let's avoid isolationism and bring others into our messes, into our adversity. And so number one, respond to adversity with community. Number two, respond to adversity with personal prayer. Respond to adversity with personal prayer. Look at verse 14. This is right after some of the smack talking of the king of Assyria. It's a letter that he wrote. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. 
Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You, O Lord, are God alone. And so this time, instead of running to the temple and plundering it for gold to try to buy off the king, Hezekiah uses the temple for what it was intended for, to be a house of prayer. He's standing on the truth that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And so he responds to adversity here with personal prayer. Now listen, prayer does not eliminate the need for human solutions. For example... Chapter 20, verse 20, he comes up with a great idea to get water into the city. But our ultimate trust must always be in God alone. And so when adversity comes, respond with prayer. And in these four short verses where he's praying, Hezekiah gives us a clinic on prayer. Practically and motivationally. Like from a motivation standpoint, sometimes people will say to me, Pastor, I wish I was more disciplined in my prayer life. And listen, me too. I'm not knocking discipline. But notice Hezekiah here is not praying out of discipline. He's praying out of desperation. Learn to pray out of your desperation, not your discipline. That's how your prayer life will take off. When you realize how desperate you are in every situation, in every minute of life. When you begin to see how desperate you are for God's provision in every area of your life. And how He's sovereign over all things with all power. Then you will pray. And so motivationally, Hezekiah models for us praying out of our desperation. But then practically, just looking at his prayer, you can break it down into three main points. And so if you're like, man, I just, I don't know how to pray. Let me give you three things right here. One, start by recounting what you know to be true about Jesus. Start your prayer, by recounting what you know to be true about Jesus. And so, for example, verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. He's talking about His holiness. You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Talking about His sovereignty and His power. You have made heaven and earth. That He's the Creator. And so, number one, start by recounting what you know to be true about God. And then secondly... Tell him about your problems. Okay? Tell him about your problems. He knows them, every single little detail. And so be honest. Don't try to shade it. Like, oh, just kind of tell him this. Maybe he won't think. No, he knows. So don't be honest with him. And so verse 16, for example. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib. Like he's telling him, here's what's going on. Which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria... He's saying, and it's real, like they really are 46 and 0. They've destroyed all these people and they just told me they're about to be 47 and 0. They're going to invade. They've laid waste the nations in their lands. They've cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. And so number two, tell them about your problems. 
And then number three, ask him for whatever help you need. Okay, ask him for whatever help you need. Verse 19, so now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And so number one, recount what you know. Number two, tell him about the situation. And number three, ask him to help. Okay, one, two, three. It's not complicated. Just talk to God. But also notice this one thing that Hezekiah does. Even while he's asking God to certainly help him with what he needs, his quote-unquote, you know, daily bread. Even while he's doing that, his whole focus is on the glory and purpose of God. Verse 19, again, So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. It's just like Jesus taught us in the model prayer he he taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As J.D. Greer, the pastor of Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina puts it, effective prayer is discerning what God wants and then asking him for it. It's discerning what God wants and then asking Him for it. And so if you're having a lot of unanswered prayers, the first thing I'd check is, like, what are you praying for? Is it what God wants? Or is it what you want? He continues, In the Bible, faith is never just a positive emotion toward God versus our culture that we work up. A presumptuous optimism that God will give us what we want if we just believe it enough. According to the Bible, faith is a response to what God has revealed. So in order to have faith, we first have to know what God has revealed. And God has revealed himself primarily through his word. And so it's in here that God shows us the mountains that he wants to move. And then we ask him to move them and he does. And so, man, respond to adversity. Whatever is in your life, respond with personal prayer. Recount what you know to be true of God. Tell him the situation. Ask him for his help. Okay, respond with prayer. Whatever you're facing. And so Hezekiah, he's brought others into this situation. He's praying for himself as well. But at this moment, when he prays, as far as he can tell, nothing's changed. Like uh, They're still out there in front of him. They're still camping out, surrounding his little town. And then he gets word from the prophet Isaiah that God has heard every bit of Sennacherib's smack talk. And he's heard every bit of Hezekiah's prayer. And he's about to act on his behalf. He's about to drive Sennacherib out of the land and have him fall by the sword in his own land. So look at chapter 19, verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, that Davidic covenant. God will keep his promises and God will not be mocked. 
And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. You remember Jonah? These are the people. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. And so, friends, what I want you to see here is how easy it is for God to do what he wants. How easy it is for God to deliver his people. It wasn't hard for God to do this. It was easy for him. See, some of our problems that we face, they seem beyond uh, any like hope uh, that there's no, solu- there's no hope of solution for them. Health problems, family problems, social problems. Sometimes we doubt whether there is anything that God can do about it. God can take out 185,000 people in a night if he wants to. God can do more while you're sleeping than you can do in 10,000 lifetimes. He can do whatever He wants. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where He will, Proverbs 21 tells us. And so however powerful our enemies may seem, people who stand against God are in much greater danger than they could possibly imagine. Because God is not for them. He's against them. The same mighty God who took out snack of ribs is more than able to redirect our problem towards outcomes that will bring him glory and our greatest good. And so in addition to responding to adversity with community and with prayer, number four, respond to adversity with faith and trust. Respond to adversity with faith and trust. Now listen, this does not mean hakuna matata. This does not mean no worries. Okay, faith doesn't mean a lack of concern or rightly placed worry. I mean, that's the whole thing that that, that drove Hezekiah to pray. He prayed out of his desperation. There's a giant army at the gates. They might attack and destroy. And yet... Do all we can do, pray, ask God to work, and trust Him to work for His glory and our good. And so some of you personally may feel like Hezekiah here. Like you're on the brink of being crushed. God, if you don't act, I'm going to be crushed. Or even like the church overall, like capital C church, like especially in America. You know, the world tells us, you know, You can't possibly maintain Christian confession in this age or in the age to come. The church is declining in Western society. It's going to continue to do so. And, you know, if you take the Bible's teachings on things like sexuality, you're going to wind up on the wrong side of history. And that feels overwhelming at times. But when you feel like that personally or, you know, as we're talking about the church overall, Think about Hezekiah. Think about the size of the army in front of him and realize again that God can do more while you're sleeping than we can do in 10,000 lifetimes. 
and also realize that that feeling of being like on the brink of, of being crushed, it's not new to us. It's not new for our day. This is where Christian, this is where church history is so helpful with perspective. And so I implore you, read church history. Because today is nothing new. Nothing new. The Roman emperor Diocletian in 303, he went on a rampage and tried to stamp out the church. He sent out an order to burn every single Bible and he fed families to the lions. Trying to stamp it out. Like over and over and over and over and over. Christians up on, up on stabbed with you know, big long spikes set on fire to light the city of Rome. Trying to stamp this out. Diocletian, just a few later, is Constantine. Possibly has a conversion. Whether or not he did, very soon Christianity became the main religion of the Roman Empire. Can't stop it out. Or, or like Sarah's paternal side of the family. Sarah's maiden name is Pardue. That's a French name. And it means of or for God. And her family was a part of an incredibly persecuted group of French Protestants called the Huguenots. Okay, look them up. I encourage you. Church history is so good for you. And they were hated by the government. And religious leaders tried to destroy them. Brutal massacres. The massacre of St. Bartholomew's. 30,000 people murdered in one day. Blood dripping off the Louvre steps. 30,000 people. And finally at one point they thought they had killed them all. But they hadn't. The Huguenots survived. They grew. And today there's a monument that stands in France commemorating them that says, Pound away, you evil hands. The hammer breaks. The anvil stands. Or take the French atheistic philosopher Voltaire, who said in the 18th century that within a hundred years of his death, no one would even remember the Bible, except as a relic of simple people. Fifty years after his death, you know what was going on in his house, what his house was used for? This is just God showing off. It's filled with printing presses, mass-producing Bibles. The Chinese Communist Revolution sought to stamp out Christianity in the mid-19th century. But today, Mao's dead, and the church in China has grown faster than at any place, at any time, in human history. And so, yes, indeed, pound away, you evil hands. The hammer is going to break, but the anvil will stand. Because God will build His church, and the gates of hell will not be able to stop it. Now, it may not always be right here. It may not. Read City of God. Read what happened when Augustine fall of the Roman Empire. All that. It may not happen where you want it, when you want it, how you want it. But God will build His church how He wants it, when He wants it. And nothing can stop it. Not secular media. Not train wrecked governments. Not cynical professors. The church wins. Period. And you're not on the wrong side of history. Because history is his story. And you're with, if you're with him, you're okay. And so respond to the adversity that comes at you, cause it will, with faith and trust. Ultimately, God wins. So that's how you respond to adversity, with community, with prayer, with faith and trust. 
But what about when prosperity comes? How do you respond to that? Well, many of us would be like, well, that's easy. It means things are good. That's great. Friends, let's be very careful because a lot of times it's easier to look to God in suffering and adversity than it is in prosperity. So when things are going well, a lot of times we lose sight of our dependency and our desperation and our need for Christ. So as great as an example of Hezekiah, that Hezekiah was for responding to adversity, he is proportionately equal on the negative side in responding to prosperity. And so look at chapter 20, verse 12. This is actually part of a flashback. This is going back to prior to the encounter with Snack of Ribs because he's got plenty of gold. You're going to see all of that. And what's going on is he's just been healed by God of a terminal illness. God has like worked in his life. Hezekiah had been told, you're going to die. Hezekiah says, please extend my life. And God does. And we get verse 12. At that time... Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. And I'm sure the Babylonians took note of that. Come back to that. Isaiah is going to tell him that, in fact. And then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons will come from you, whom you will father shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And you become a eunuch in a very horrific way. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken, listen to this, is good. For he thought, well, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. And the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son reigned in his place. And so notice this, like when the king of Babylon showed up, do you see what's missing? Do you see what Hezekiah does not do? Like he, they show up on the heels of him being healed of a terminal disease. He had stage four cancer. God says, no, you don't anymore. He doesn't anymore. The people from Babylon show up and this is a prime time for him to say, let me tell you about what the Lord my God did in my life. And he doesn't say a word. Not one time is God even mentioned. Not one ounce of prayer, not one ounce of thanksgiving. Only look at my riches. Look at my power. Look at how much I've got in my storehouses. After God had done so much for him, Hezekiah made it all about himself. And he became proud and selfish to the point that he says in verse 19, Who cares what happens to my son someday? Who cares what happens to other people? As long as it's good for me in my lifetime, hunky-dory. 
Friends, it is so easy to receive the blessings of God and make them all about you. Like in the moment of adversity, we'll turn to God. The moment of prosperity, we'll turn back to ourselves, just like Hezekiah here. And so while Hezekiah may have sinfully responded to prosperity with entitlement, with pride, and viewing it as a source of security and identity, as far as of Christ, we are to respond to prosperity with humility, gratitude, and as a means to glorify God. This is number five. Respond to prosperity with humility, gratitude, and as a means to glorify God. And so let me ask you. How are you using your success or the ways that God is prospering you to give glory to God? How are you using it? Like if you are a prospering athlete, are you using your success to lift up God's name or your name? Are you asking, how can I use every ounce of my success to direct glory to Jesus? If you're a successful businessman or businesswoman who overcame, you know, all the roadblocks and the obstacles to get to where you are, are you thinking more about how much people admire you for your success? Or are you using your success to direct attention to Christ? See, Hezekiah's evil here wasn't idolatry, it wasn't immorality, it wasn't murder, it wasn't something like that. It was simply not leveraging his success to give glory to God. He was a glory thief. Hoarding it for himself. Look at my stuff. And so are you using your success and your resources for the glory and mission of God? Or... While people all around you perish, do you think, like Hezekiah, though you would never say it this way, but do you think, who cares? As long as me and my family and our needs are taken care of, it's fine. I mean, sure, kids right here in my own city are growing up without mothers and fathers, and people all around the world are dying with no chance to hear about Jesus, but it's okay. Me and my family and the people I love, we are hashtag blessed. Friends, don't pass the test of adversity only to fail the test of prosperity. Let's pray. Father, we are desperate people. And we don't even realize our desperation. We don't realize the depth of it. Open our eyes that we may see it. That we may feel it. Make us a people of prayer. Out of desperation. And let us respond in these ways that we've talked. And when you prosper us, let us respond with gratitude and humility and viewing it as a means to make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen.